0: We've got to part number three of our Elisha, a tale of ridiculous faith series. And as we've been going through this, I've been really just encouraged, just reading the story of Elisha, studying through it. Because, you know, in in this world, we hear a a story that there is no hope, right? We hear a story from our culture that, that... Things just are going to get worse. We, we hear a false story that they tell us. And as you read these stories, you really see that there is truth in these stories. That there is hope in God. And right in front of uh, me here, to my right, your left, there, there are two stalls here. And this one here on the right speaks of a stool, what's on the stool speaks of what's going on in many of our lives right now. Right on here, there's bills, and these are just bills that came through my mail this week. But I don't know about you, but sometimes when the bills come through, it just reminds me of how hard life can be at times. Here, there's medical bills, there's uh, utility bills, car payment bills, all those kind of bills. And and for some of you, uh, when the bills come in, it's like, The waves of life are just coming over your head. Some of you, you're in a situation in your life right now where it's just too much, whether it's a financial situation or a relationship situation. Maybe it's a health situation that you are going through. Uh, Maybe it's some issues with your career or some issues maybe with some emotions, some some depression or anxiety or fear. But, But this speaks of just the overwhelming fact that life comes crashing in and life can be hard and it can be so fearful and we can be full of, anxiety and doubt and, and, and understand that there's no hope and there's no future and, and we're not sure what what are going on and some of you you are experiencing this right now in your life now over here on this stall to my left and your right there is a bowl on this stall and while that stall speaks of our lives this stall here and this bowl speaks of God now I have to be honest with you, right in this bowl is an addiction of mine. And uh, some of us, we have addictions, and this is one of my addictions. It's called pretzel M&Ms. They are the most addictive things you could ever imagine. Anyone want a pretzel M&M? You want a pretzel M&M? No? Anyone want a pretzel M&M? The reason I say it's my addiction is because I will buy a packet of pretzel M&Ms, hide them from my wife, and then when she's not looking, I will pour them into a bowl. I will put them in our kitchen, which is in the center of our home. And every time I walk past the bowl, what do I do? My hand reaches out into the bowl. I take the sacrament of the pretzel M&M and I partake in this sacrament. And it's amazing because I never just sit down and just eat and eat. But every time I walk by, I reach out and I can consume like one of these packets in like a whole day myself. It's amazing how many times I can walk around that kitchen and find things to do when there's pretzel M&Ms around. (laughs) You may think, well, Alex, what has this got to do with God at all? Well, this is how I feel that God is with us. Because when God sees you, when God walks around, he cannot help but reach out his hand to touch you. He can't help but reach out his hand to love you, to provide for you, to forgive you, to show you his grace and his mercy. And, and as long as we keep our lives available, like the pretzel M&Ms are available, like me, he is going to be reaching out into your life to touch and, and to, and to gather and, and, and to give you his love and his grace. And this is the issue at times. We become so overwhelmed with what's going on over here. We forget to offer our lives to God, like this bowl of pretzel M&M's. And so our lives suddenly become all about this instead of this. And so often, because our lives are so overwhelmed with all the stuff that's going on, we, we are seeking a miracle. We realize there's no hope. There's no future. We need a miracle. But what has happened is we've taken the bowl of pretzel M&Ms away. See, this is what happens in my house. My wife will see them. She will take them. She will put them in a, a bag and she will put them in a cabinet and out of my sight. Out of sight is out of mind, right? I do not go searching for them. It's just if they're there, I will take them. I I, I will get them. And so often, this is what we do with God, is that we will take our lives, we will take them out of his view, and we will put them away because we're so overwhelmed with what is going on over here. And I want to explain just kind of that through a story this morning. The story is found in the second book of Kings, chapter 4. The second book of Kings, chapter 4. And this is all about an incredible miracle that God did. Somebody who needed a miracle. And the problem is for so many of us, we need a miracle in our lives, but we are searching for that miracle elsewhere. We're searching for that miracle through doctors and bank managers and credit cards and loans and through counselors and and different ones. We're searching for that miracle everywhere. And we stopped searching through the eyes and the filter of God. And this woman, she started doing this. And then she realized this was not working. So if you got your Bibles, if you wanted to the 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. And we'll start reading at verse 1. It said, One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead. And you know how we fear the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. So, just to unpack this context here, we've got a guy who is a prophet of God. In week one, we said that a prophet is somebody who hears a message from God and then tells it to others. Now, Elisha was a prophet. And what we understand about this, Elisha was like the lead prophet. And then there were prophets under him who served with him. And this man was somebody who served with Elisha, who was a prophet of God. And we find that he has passed away. There is grief everywhere. There is grief amongst the prophets. There is grief in his household. He has left a widow and two sons behind him. Now, let me just put this in context for you a little bit. In the 9th century BC, which this story took place in, prophets did not earn a lot of money. They're not like some TV evangelist with a white suit and some crazy hair who've got a bunch of money. They were people who did not get paid. Nobody paid them. They didn't have a church to take up a collection that would pay them. They didn't have people who would sponsor them to go out and become missionaries. They didn't get paid. They had to rely fully on God for everything. Uh, Every piece of food, every piece of clothing for their housing. They had to rely completely on God. And so these prophets were poor and this prophet was poor. And this prophet, he had died and he had left behind him not just a widow and two sons, but he had left behind him a ton of debt as well. See, There probably was a moment in his life where the bills were piling up. And he'd been trusting in God, trusting in God. But for some reason, there was more bill than there were money. So he went out and started to lend money. He went and took on some debt. And and now, when we take on debt here in, in our culture, if it's a large amount of debt, then we secure it against something. We secure it against a house or a car or a business. So so what happens is if you don't pay your mortgage, eventually when the bank gets itself together after about like three years, I don't know how long it is, but they'll come and take your house from. If you don't pay your car loan, if you've got a car loan, then one day you'll find a tow truck come to your house and they will tow that car away. If you don't pay it, you secure it against something. Now, in the 9th century BC, they still secured loans against things, but they didn't secure it so much against property, because people didn't have the property we have now. It's they instead secured against people. And it was not uncommon for somebody to take out a loan and secure it against their children. Their children became collateral for that loan. And this is what happened with this prophet. He'd taken out a loan and he had secured it against his two sons. And so if he would not be able to pay the, the, the loan back, then they, the creditor would take the sons and the sons would serve them as slaves. Now this man has died and left this debt to this woman. Now, I'm thankful that society has moved on a little, that we now have equal pay in most industries between men and women. Unless you're a tennis player, then maybe not, because I know there was a big thing a couple of months ago about the women tennis players not getting as much as the male tennis players, and it got all crazy. But back in the 9th century BC, things were a little different. Women, w- women were seen as a lesser person than a man, and for those wise men, you realize that just isn't the case. They're probably like more superior than what we are, but we just don't tell them that. Um, but they were seen as a lesser person and they were not able to work like a man could work. They could not earn a living like a man could earn a living. So for widows who did not have a man who could provide for them, they, there was two alternatives. They could go into slavery or they could go into prostitution. Those were the two options. Now this was a prophet's wife. She honored God and loved God. This was not. Neither of these were an option for her. And so she was in a place like the people with these bills and these things. That life was just coming over her and overwhelming her. There was no future. There was no hope for her. Now, let me just tell you two things I see just in this little verse. That I think is important to understand. This was a prophet of God who trusted in God. But yet, he had taken debt on and secured it against his sons. This is what I see in this. Just because God is on your side does not mean that you can make foolish decisions. Just because God's on your side doesn't mean that you can make foolish decisions. Who would secure a loan against their children? I mean, come on, that's a foolish decision. So just because you've got God on your side does not mean that you should make foolish decisions. The second thing I see in this as well is that we don't know what tomorrow may hold. We need to start to get our affairs in order now and not wait until tomorrow. Not wait until we retire, not wait till we pay off the house, not wait till the kids are out of college and, and, and that we can get them in order. We need to get our affairs in order now because we don't know what tomorrow may hold. This man did not keep his affairs in order. He died and now his, his, his family are not just lose a father, they are now going to lose their lives as they know it. And this is why I'm so proud of so many of you who on Sunday nights were going through Financial Peace University together, just on a financial aspect that you have decided we're going to get our affairs in order now. And I think that is a wise choice to make. But this woman, she is drowning in debt. There's no hope. There's no future. And suddenly the ways of life are just coming over her head and she feels that it's all going to end. But I've discovered this. It's often in these moments of despair that God starts to show how much he really loves you. Just like the bowl of pretzel M&M's. In our moment of despair, God starts to reach out into our lives and show us his love and his provision. And he shows us the miraculous in our lives and what he can really do and his power. And So as we're going to continue reading this story this morning, there's three things I I want to share with you. And the first one is this. When you lose your life, you find new life. When you lose your life, you find new life. Let's read this again. So Second Kings chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. It says, One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who, s- who served you is dead. You know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. And verse 2. What can I do to help you, Elisha said. What can I do to help you, Elisha said. It was in the moment of being totally empty, of having nothing, of hitting rock bottom, that this woman starts crying out to God. Now just reading between the lines, I wonder if this woman's debt was half as much as what it was. Would she have cried out to God? If this woman was able to work to pay off her debt, would she have cried out to God in despair? If this man had an awesome life insurance policy and they would have been set for life, would she have cried out to God in despair? I don't know, but this is what I've discovered. That it's often in those moments of desperation that we start to come to God in desperation. Last week we said, your biggest need can become your greatest blessing if it drives you towards God. And this soul-destroying moment in this woman's life drove her towards God. You know, I've I've seen in my life that when life sometimes gets hard and gets bad, sometimes I start seeking out advice from different ones. Advice from maybe friends or family or uh, advice from coaches or experts. Uh, you know, when, when, the, when the bills start piling, piling, I start maybe looking at maybe a credit limit on my credit card or what loans I can take out or, or some things that I can do. But when things get really, really bad, when they get to a place where there is no hope, I find myself always calling out to God. I don't know. You probably do the same. When there's no hope in a situation, you find yourself. Okay, now I'm going to call out to God. I know that when the bills start piling up, I tend to hold my hold God a little tighter than I normally do. I wish I could say that when everything is great, I hold onto God so tight, but often it's in those moments of despair that I hold onto God a little tighter. But this is what I've discovered in this journey of faith. Rock bottom, and some of you, you're experiencing rock bottom right now in your lives. Rock bottom is not the end. Rock bottom is not the end. In fact, I believe this. Rock bottom is God showing you that there is a tunnel of grace and provision he has created for you to climb out through. So often we get to rock bottom and all we can see is there's no way out up And we start looking at where we've come from, thinking how can we ever get back to where we were, but all along that God is creating a new pathway for us to walk through. See, if you're in rock bottom, it is not the end. God still has a way out for you. Matthew 16, verse 25 tells us this. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it, but... If you give up your life for my sake, said Jesus, you will save it. So Jesus is saying, if you try to hang on to your life, then you're going to lose your life. But if you give your life for my purposes and my sake, then you are going to save your life. When Jesus said this, this was shocking to people. It was amazing. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense that if we give our lives away that then we're going to save our lives instead of like trying to hold on to our lives. When we save it then, no, Jesus said you're going to lose your life. And it doesn't make sense, but I want to pair it with another verse because it makes all the sense in the world. This verse is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And this verse says this, If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not maybe you might be saved, maybe, you know, it's, if you do some other things you'll be saved. It says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But it's in the moment of being in rock bottom, it's in the moment when you lose your life, that's when we often call out to God. So that's why you will be saved. Because it's in that moment we call to God that God will save us. And this widow, in the process of losing her life as she knew it, we're going to discover that she will start to find new life. And it's a life of trusting within God. So when you lose your life, you'll find you'll have new life. Second thing I want to mention to you today. It's not what you want It's what you have that makes the difference. So that again, it's not what you want, but it's what you have that will make the difference. Let's continue in this story. So 2 Kings 4 verse 2. Elisha says, What can I do to help you? Then he says this, Tell me what you have in the house. Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, Borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and your neighbours. Then go into your house with your sons. Shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars. Setting each one aside as it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. So Elisha asks her this question What do you have? What do you have? Notice Elijah, Elisha doesn't say this. How much can you borrow? How much credit line do you have? Elisha doesn't say, How much can you sell? Elisha didn't say, okay, let's figure out, let's get a financial expert in and let's figure out a way to bankruptcy so that you're not going to lose everything at all. Now, Elisha asked us, what do you have? Now, to me, it seems a little... Impersonal. I'm like, Elisha, this woman is going through the hardest moments of her life. She will never go through a more difficult moment in her life. She is at rock bottom. The ways of life are coming over her. There is no hope. And all you ask is, what does she have? Does it, don't you think she's thought through that already? Don't you think she thought through what she can sell to save her sons? Don't you think she thought about, okay, how, how much of a line of credit can I get? Don't you think she thought about, uh, about okay, d- d- do I have anything that, that can save us? Of course she thought through that. But then Elisha comes and says, what do you have? And this is what she says, because you know she's been thinking about what she can sell. She says, all I have is a little jar of olive oil. Olive oil back in the 9th century BC, it wasn't just to dip some bread in, you know, or to cook with. Even though you did cook with it and you actually made bread for, with olive oil back in the 9th century BC. But it had other purposes as well. They used it for lamps so that they could actually like see in the dark. Soldiers would use it and put it on their shields to strengthen and keep the life of their shields. Perfume was big back then and they used olive oil for perfume. Olive oil back in the 9th century BC was a trade item of value. Every house needed it and the more that you had the wealthier that you became. And so this woman says all I have is a small jar of olive oil. Basically all I have is enough to make bread for my sons before they're taken into slavery. But Elisha was not looking for the solution. For Elisha already knew the solution. Elisha was looking for something for God to multiply. Take you back to the story of Jesus. When Jesus is one day... With all the multitudes and they're out in the wilderness and Jesus is teaching them. And suddenly his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, it's getting dark and everybody's hungry. We have no food. Send everybody back to their home. Otherwise, they're going to start getting hungry. You know, there's no Chick-fil-A because it's Sunday. You know, there's there's McDonald's. Who cares about McDonald's? You know, And, and, And so there's nothing for them to eat at all. And this is what Jesus said. He says, well, feed them. And they're like, Jesus, it would take seven months wages just to feed these people. There were like 5,000 men. And then on top of that, there was women and children. And Jesus said this, well, what do we have? And they like laughed almost sarcastically and said, all we have is two fish and five loaves. That's some little boy packed in his little transformer, you know, lunchbox. And Jesus said, bring them to me. And the story goes like this, that Jesus multiplied, and everybody was full, and all 5,000 families were full, and then there was 12 baskets of food left over. See, Jesus isn't looking for the solution, because he has the solution, but the solution is in your hand, and he's looking for something to multiply, because God is a multiplying God. And this is so God. He isn't interested in how much or how little you have. Just are you willing to give him what you have? I told a story about four months ago here at Generation Church about my grandmother. My grandmother, her husband had died when her husband was 42, left a 7-year-old boy and a 10-year-old girl. And uh, one day, uh, a couple of years after my, my grandfather had died, uh, they, were living on the, they were living on hardly anything it was before, like the equivalent of social security. And she worked, you know, long hours just to, to be able to feed her kids. And she was at one church, and she went to a service on a Wednesday night, and there was this missionary. And as she started to hear the missionary talk, she started feeling that God was, was, was speaking to her. And this is what she felt God speak. She says, what you have in your purse, you need to give to this missionary. And my grandmother argued with God, like in this like, you know, spiritual moment. She said, God, that is all we have for groceries for the rest of the week. We have nothing else. I need that money to feed my children. So she ignored God. And as the missionary kept talking, she kept feeling God prompting her, give, give, give. Give what you have. So at the end of the service, they passed around an offering for the missionary. And my grandmother with tears in her eyes, she went into her purse and she took the money that, to feed her kids and she put it in this offering plate. Who does that? I mean, you've got to feed your kids. It's like, give it to some missionary or give it to feed your kids. I'm thinking feed your kids. She put it in the offering plate. She went home. The worries of life started piling up even more. The waves of life were coming, crashing over her head. The worry, the anxiety, because now she didn't have what she thought she had. And she went home and she went home just saying, God, you're going to have to come through. What are you going to do? She's greeted by my dad, who's now like a 10-year-old boy. And my dad's like, Mom, Mom, you never guess what happened today. And she's like, what? She goes, I was walking down this country lane back from school and took a little detour. And I saw there was like all these hedges along the road and I saw something glistening in the bushes and I went over there and and he said, this is what I found. And he pulled out a crisp five pound note. Now back in the 50s in England, a crisp five pound note was worth a lot of value. It was probably enough to feed her kids for two months. See, God is interested in what you have, not what you want. What you have. See, what is in your hand is the thing that sparks the miracle. See, this is what I've discovered, that miracles don't happen in your hand. Miracles don't happen in your hand. They only happen in the hand of God. And that's why we need to give God what we have so God can make the miracle. You can't make the miracle. Only God can make the miracle. That's why you need to give God what you have. And this is what I, I've, I've discovered just as our family and also as our church, is that when things get really tight, that I've always feel like God starts to impel us to give more. To give more. Happened in our church in 2011, December 2011. Things were a little tight. Things weren't going that well. And I felt God say, I want you to give to a church planter who was doing way better than what we were. I was like, God, I was like, we need that money, not him. He was like, give. And I remember giving that, and it was like almost a breakthrough that God started blessing us as a church after that. I know in our family, in our house, that when the bills start piling up, it's almost like, okay, instead of thinking, how are we going to pay it, like, okay, how are we going to give to God what we have? Because God perform the miracle in his hands so Elisha starts to pour and tell or the woman starts to pour and tells uh, and, and and Elisha tells the widow get as many pots and pans she went out into the neighborhood got all the tupperware she could find got everybody's pots and pans she got everyone's mason jars and they started pouring and the oil started flowing and flowing and flowing and the oil was filling up all these jars And this woman started to understand that God is a God of ridiculous provision. Oil was valuable, and suddenly the value started coming into her house. This woman only had enough to make bread for her sons, yet God wanted all of it. For it's not what you want, but it's what you have that makes the difference. Number three, finally today, the water stops when you turn it off. The water stops when you turn it off. 2 Kings 4 verses 6 to 7. So they're pouring. It said, soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. I believe that God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are gentlemen. I believe that they will not press in more than what you will allow. That when you... Put out your bowl of pretzel M and M's, that they will come and they will reach in with their power and their love. But I also believe that when you put that away, that they will stop. They're not like those busybodies who come into your house and they go through all your cabinets and you know, you know. Okay, what have they got in here? Oh, they got some liquor. Uh, 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 you know. But they are polite and gentlemen. And if you put it away, they won't keep reaching out. The widow ran out of pots and pans and jars. Now, the great thing about the widow, she had enough. She had filled every pot and pan in that neighborhood, and there was enough to pay her debts. And God had performed an incredible miracle, and they had enough to live live on after that. God showed this woman that faith results in ridiculous provision. She had more than enough. But I I want us, sometimes we look past this as we read through this. Wow, God did the miracle. But we forget the importance of what they said. As soon as the jars were full, the oil stopped. God requires what we call empty vessels to pour into. And maybe, and this is just a maybe, but maybe in your life right now, you are not seeing the provision of God because you are not empty enough. Maybe you have filled your life with other things with the worries of this life, with seeking out different things. Maybe you filled your life with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a marriage or your kids. Or you filled your life with a career or, or, or some rec- recreational activity. Maybe you, you, you filled your life with trying to be somebody and going somewhere, and your life is so full that God cannot pour in anymore. See, God requires empty vessels. And I want to share this, with, this with, with you today. And I really feel it was from the Holy Spirit because I don't think I'm clever enough to come up with this. But this is what I felt God really wanted me to say to you guys today. Is this, your receiving capacity is always dependent on your emptying capacity. I'll say that again. Your receiving capacity is always dependent on your emptying capacity. How much you can empty so God can fill up. Yeah, God performed the miracle for this lady, but if she had more jars, God would have still continued to bless her. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30, there was a guy called the John the Baptist who was this great, amazing preacher and prophet of God. Many people thought he was the Messiah. He was not. But this is what he said. He said, talking about Jesus. He must become greater and greater. And I must become less and less. See, John the Baptist understood that the less that it is about us and the more it is about God, the greater that God becomes in our lives when the ways of life are coming crashing down, sometimes God allows us to hit rock bottom, to empty out so that he can pour into our lives. Elisha went on from this incredible miracle. He met a lady who could not have children. And all her friends had had children and, and, and she had served God and honored God. And she asked the question time and time again, God, why not me? Why can I not have children? And so she cried out to Elisha. And Elisha said this. This is what God said. In one year, you will have a child. She was like, Elisha, don't say such ridiculous things. She was, no, in one year, you will have a child. And one year later, the lady had a child. There was celebration everywhere. God had done this incredible miracle. So much joy in their house. Then a year after that, a terrible tragedy happened. Several years after that, terrible, ter- terrible tragedy happened. The boy died. This woman, I can imagine her emotion. God, why have you allowed this to happen? She said to Elisha, why did you even tell me that we would have a child? To get our hopes up, then for our hopes to be dashed. We're broken more than we've ever been broken before. So Elisha sent word with his servant to go and do some kind of ritual with some spices and things. To see if the boy would come back to life. And the boy stayed stone cold dead. So Elisha said, we must do something. So Elisha went to the house that day. He went to the room where the boy was. His dead, cold body was laying on a bed. He went in, closed the door behind him, and he did something that was kind of weird and strange. He went and he put his body on the boy's body. He put his forehead on the boy's forehead. He put his eyes on the boy's eyes, his nose on the boy's nose, his mouth on the boy's mouth. He lay his body on the the boy. And then Elisha breathed into this dead body. And suddenly, the boy came back to life. The boy had breath. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. You may be in a moment in your life where life is just overwhelming you. Just the struggles and the problems in life. And the the waves are just crashing in and your head is going under. And you feel this is it. My life is over. There is no future. There is no hope at all. And Jesus says come. Let me come and breathe life into you. Come, open yourself, make yourself available to me. And so that you can start to see how I see. You can live how I live. You can receive the heart that I have. And Jesus started to breathe new life into us. Like Elisha breathed into this boy. And and when the ways of life are crashing down and we can't even get our breath, then Jesus breathes and we can breathe again. And for those of you, you know what rock bottom feels like. You cannot breathe. It's like you're being choked and Jesus comes and he breathes life and you can start to breathe fresh air again. And there's nothing like breathing fresh air when you've been at the bottom of a pit. Jesus raises you to new life. So, don't let stall number one kill. Don't let stall number one overwhelm you. Don't let stall number one destroy your marriages or your family. Don't let stall number one destroy your dreams and your aspirations and your hopes. Don't let stall number one destroy your faith. Instead, come over to stall number two and get out your bowl of M&M pretzels and start offering them to God. Only you know what you need to offer to God. But offer your life to God. Make your life available to God. And watch how the loving arm of a Savior, Jesus Christ, will start to reach into your life. And start to show his grace and his mercy and his provision and his, and his salvation and his forgiveness and his peace in your life. But it all starts with answering this question. What do you have? spar heads in prayer.